Be with us, Lord, we pray, as your word is open to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, so that our hearts may turn to love you, as you first loved us, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. When I was a young boy, I studied Latin for a year, and the first word that we were taught was amo, meaning love. It was a good word to start with because love is the stuff of so many stories, so many songs, so many books, so many movies. And as a word, it has a greater range of meanings than any other I know of. So, for example, like you, I love God, I love my wife, my children, I love reading, I love chocolate, and I love watching football. And though I use the same word love for all of these, I'm sure I don't mean the same for each of them. And if I ask you what is real love, I'm sure that you could come up with a good answer. But if I asked Hollywood the same question, I'm equally sure that their answer would be much more appealing than yours or mine, but almost entirely wrong. For Hollywood and popular culture, love is a feeling, it's an infatuation, a tingling of the spine. Love is easy and natural, it makes the world go round. Love is what makes you feel good, love is romance. Now of course if you're married and a parent, you know that true love is not any of those things. True love is hard work. It perseveres and it never gives up. It never lets go. Some time ago I read an article by Simon Barnes. He was the chief sports writer in the Times in London. And the article was entitled, I'm not a saint, I'm just a parent. And in the article he speaks of being a father. A father to his second son, Eddie, who has Down syndrome. And at one point in the article he says this. He says, if you find the idea of love uncomfortable or sentimental, or best not talked about, or existing only in the midst of a passionate love affair, then you'll find problems with what I'm writing. I'm writing of love not as a matter of grand passion, or as a highfalutin idealism, or as religion. I'm talking about love as the stuff that makes the processes of human nature happen. The love that moves the sun and other stars is also the love that makes the toast and other snacks. Love is the most humdrum thing in life. It's the only thing that matters. It's the thing that is forever beyond the reach of human imagination. Now the point that Barnes makes is powerful. Real love is not the love of infatuation or a flutter of the heart. Real love is about burnt toast and cups of tea. Real love is about caring for sick children who think nothing of vomiting all over you. Real love is caring for a spouse who can no longer remember your name. Real love perseveres, it never gives up, and it never lets go. And that's the sort of love that Hosea writes about. He writes about our God who loves his people and will never give up on them. 
When Hosea was writing in the 8th century BC, he was addressing the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was a period of relative calm in the region and affluence in the nation. And though many were becoming wealthier, growing also was complacency and indifference towards God. The people had come to love all sorts of things other than God. In many ways, not very different to life in Australia today. The dream run, however, was about to cease. Assyria in the north was rousing itself and threatening to move south and destroy Israel. The fate of the nation was in the balance. And to a nation that was cold and indifferent to him, God sends Hosea with a message of love. And that's what the book of Hosea is. It's a love story. It's the second greatest love story in the Bible. And the book has 14 chapters with no obvious structure, except to divide it into two parts. Part 1 from chapters 1 to 3 is a picture. A picture of God's relationship with Israel. And part 2 from chapters 4 to the end is an explanation of that relationship. And the dominant picture of God's relationship with Israel is that of a tragic marriage breakdown. Hosea is told to marry a wife who will be promiscuous and unfaithful to him and to have children. And the reason for that marriage is given in verse 2 of chapter 1. It's because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Now that doesn't sound like a great reason to get married, but God's organised this sort of thing before. A few times in the Bible, God asks the prophets to picture their messages by what they're doing in their actions. Ezekiel, for example, was told to dig through the wall of the city while people were watching to demonstrate that they were going off into exile. Jeremiah, for example, was told to go and buy a piece of property in Judah to demonstrate that the nation would return from exile. But no prophet was ever given such a heart-rending task as that given to Hosea. He was told to go and marry the woman Goma. Look from verse 3. She conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I'll soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and in that day... I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. It's no wonder you don't meet many Jezreels these days. Now Jezreel is the first of three children that Gomer had. And though Gomer bore the first child to Hosea, it's not clear who fathered the next two children. In verse 6, Gomer gives birth again, this time to a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah. And in verse 9, she has a son called Lo-Ami. And like Jezreel, these names given to the children, well, they're meant to shock us. They convey judgment. Jezreel means scattered. Lo-Ruhamah means not loved. And Lo-Ami means not my people. 
This marriage and this family are totally dysfunctional. It's like God is saying to Israel, do you want to know what my relationship with you is like? Well, go and have a look at Hosea and Gomer. Like Gomer, Israel is unfaithful. Gomer ran off with other men forsaking Hosea. So too Israel has run off with other gods. Israel has forsaken the one true God, her covenant partner. And the outcome of that unfaithfulness will be judgment. And the three children bear the names of that judgment. Israel will become unloved, forsaken and scattered to the nations. So what about Hosea? What's he supposed to do? Well, you'd reckon that his choice is a pretty obvious one. Hosea's done nothing wrong. He was obedient to God. He married Gomer. And now he finds himself in this loveless and faithless marriage. He needs to cut his losses and leave Gomer to her fate. After all, he's the innocent party here. So what does God tell Hosea to do? Well, in chapter 3, he says to Hosea, go back to Gomer. Can you believe it? Have a look at chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So Hosea bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then Hosea says to her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will live with you. Now that sounds like idolatry and redemption and a call to intimacy and holiness. And this is not just a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. This is a picture of God's amazing love for his people. This sort of love, well, it isn't romantic and it's not trivial. This sort of love is costly. It's a love that doesn't give up. It's a love that never says, well, I don't love you anymore, though it has every reason to do so. This is a love that persists and pursues. And in the second part of the story from chapter 4 onwards, it now gets fleshed out and explained. And the same imagery of an adulterous relationship is used in chapter 4, which commences with an accusation against Israel. Have a look from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you, you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Can you see what's happening here? Israel hasn't simply withheld her faithfulness and her love from God. It's not that she's just stopped loving God. She's actually transferred her love to other gods. Like Gomer, who chased after other men, Israel has chased after other gods. 
they're now worshipping with the pagan fertility cults. And prostitution is a part of that worship, a part of their new religion. So from chapter 4, verse 10, we read of God's judgment. They will eat, but not have enough. They'll engage in prostitution, but not increase, because they've deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old and new wine will take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They're unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops. They burn offerings on the hills, under the oak and the poplar and the terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law turn to adultery. Israel's spiritual adultery has left them in a drunken stupor. They're now worshipping dumb idols and they're trying to pick up pieces of shattered and broken relationships. Certainly sounds a lot like so much of our own culture. And from this low point, well, things get even worse. As well as worshipping foreign gods, Israel now looks to foreign powers, hoping to find rescue there rather than relying on God. At first they look to Assyria to protect them and then they look to Egypt. So we read in chapter 7, verse 11, Ephraim, a name for Israel, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. But in the end, both these nations turn against Israel. In chapter 8, verse 8, we read, Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations, like a worthless thing. And because Israel does not repent, they're punished for their sins. They go into exile and are in bondage to the Assyrians. And in chapter 9, verse 3, we're told, they don't remain in the Lord's land. Instead, they return to Egypt. And they end up eating unclean food in Assyria. So that's God's judgment. And it's a judgment that they brought upon themselves. God is not mocked, for what we sow is what we reap. But at no time, either before or after the exile, does God ever stop loving Israel. God's love is constant and it's strong. Have a look at chapter 11 from verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboiim? My heart is changed within me, or all my compassion is aroused. So even though God punishes Israel for their sins, he does not punish them as an enemy, but as a father. A father who loves them and wants what's best for them. And though Israel are exiled to Assyria, exile is not meant to be the end for them. This always way back. God's love will never 
let go. And the way back is this. We read it in chapter 14 from verse 1. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to the Lord, forgive us all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Can you see that the way back is through words, words of repentance and words of sorrow. And God's assurance, God's guarantee, is that if his people are sorrowful and repentant, then he will never withhold forgiveness. He'll never withhold healing and he'll never withhold restoration. God goes on to say from verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. And though Israel, like Gomer, had sinned and chased after other lovers, God promised that if they asked for forgiveness and grace, then he would give it to them freely and fully. Now this image of God's costly love is powerful. Hosea has scraped together 15 shekels of silver and some barley. And he heads off in the middle of the night to the red light district to buy back his own wife. It's a picture of incredible love. But as I said earlier, it's the second greatest love story in the Bible. The greatest love story is the gospel. For that's a story of God who didn't scrape together a part of his wealth to redeem us, but he sent his own son Jesus in the world to pursue us. And then having found us, he gives up his own life to purchase us for God. Paul describes that in Romans. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what God does. God does not wait for us to turn in repentance and faith before he offers his love. God goes out of his way to pursue us in his love. The great American preacher of the 19th century, D.G. Barnhouse, said this. He said, This pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe. We leave God in the heat of our own self-desire. We run from his will because we want so much to have our own way. We get to a crossroads and we look back in pride, thinking we've outdistanced him. And just as we're about to congratulate ourselves on our achievement of self-enthronement, we feel a touch on our arm and we turn in that direction and there he is. And he says to us in great tenderness, he says, I saw you running away from everything that's good. So I 
pursued you through a short club, shortcut that love knows so well. And I waited for you here at the crossroads. My name and nature are love, so I act according to that which I am. That's why I've pursued you. I wanted to tell you that when you're tired of running and wandering, I'll be there to draw you to myself once more. Every one of us wants to be loved like that, to be sought after, to be wooed, and to be searched for. And that's what God's love is like. It's constant rather than fickle. It's tender rather than harsh. And it's prevailing rather than resigning. And only God loves like that, totally and unreservedly. The world can offer imitations and shadows of that love. And when we look anywhere else for a security and a wholeness that can only come from God, it always ends in disappointment. For we can only be perfectly fulfilled by God's love. And that's the thing about God's love. Not only is it perfectly fulfilling, it trucks no rivals. God refuses to take second place in our lives. God's love is a jealous love. He is not asking for a special place in our lives. His commandment is that we have no other gods before him. That we love him first and foremost with our whole being. Heart, soul, mind, body, strength. And such a commandment is foundational for any relationship that we have with God. Because upon it we build our lives and every other foundation is shaky ground, sinking sand. As Jesus says, none of us can serve two masters. If we try, we will fail, and in our attempt we will become undone. And though there's always a way back, or always, it's only one way back. It's a way of repentance and faith in the one who truly loves us. Only God's love will never give up on us. Only God's love will never let us go. And God's love will pursue us until we join our love with his. Now that sort of love is portrayed powerfully in Hosea, but even more powerfully in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love that will not let go. Thank you that though we fail you and turn our backs on you, you never turn away from us but pursue us and call us to repentance and faith. Teach us, O Lord, to forgive as you have forgiven us, to love as you have loved us, to find in you our healing when we are hurt, our hope when we are in despair, our peace when we are in turmoil, and faith when our hearts are assailed by doubt. Thank you that you've demonstrated your own love for us in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we live our lives in faith and hope, but above all in love. 
for your love endures forever. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.